Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast of The Decision Lab, a nonprofit think tank dedicated to democratizing behavioral science. We conduct behavioral research and consulting projects with clients such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to help improve outcomes for all of society. My name is Brooke Strupp, Research Director here at TDL, and I'll be your host for the discussion. My guest today is Cass Sunstein, Harvard professor, former senior member of the Obama administration, and co-author of Nudge, the landmark book he wrote with Richard Thaler. In today's episode, we'll be talking about fun, what it is, using it to promote better outcomes, and ways that we can just have more fun. Professor Sunstein, Cass, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So let's dive right in. What do we mean by fun, and what is it as a solution? Well, the word fun connotes something that makes you smile with a kind of ease and joy. It's a particular kind of joy. It means you're laughing a little bit, maybe. The notion of fun is associated with play, something that inculcates something like delight, a sense that life is good, some amusement. If you think of opening a present on a holiday, say Christmas, it might be really fun if it's something that you quite like and can do something good with. And life often, even in a time of pandemic, will have moments, and if you're lucky, hours of exactly that. Why we have the subjective perception anyway, and and you pointed out that uh, perhaps the objective reality and the subjective perception differ. But the subjective perception, there isn't always a lot of fun going on. And I'm thinking especially of professional contexts, and as we'll explore later, kind of engagements with government and other policy contexts. It's a great question. So there are billions of people. What's happening worldwide with respect to the fun curve, let's call it, is uh, to be determined. It's a great empirical question. My guess is that we'd find a lot of diversity out there, meaning that among some demographic groups and some regions, fun is on the increase. And in some places, the curve is flattening in not a very good way. And then it would be very good to know exactly why. So among people who are struggling, of course, economically, the stress and uh, preoccupation of trying to figure out how you're going to make ends meet diminishes fun. And among people who are working really hard, either because they're obsessed or because their employer is pressing them hard or because they've just gotten into the habit of working really hard, fun is likely to be less. So it would be a very good empirical project to figure out the drivers of life. I'm sure that we'd get some big surprises with respect to who's having fun and who isn't and what factors actually are causally associated with that. It's interesting. It's kind of a different twist on a somewhat Socratic project, right? Seeking, seeking the good life. But in this case, we're not uh, just sitting down and musing about what constitutes the good life, but going out and running experiments to figure out how we get there. There is a lot of very good work done on two things. First is what kind of purpose people are having in their lives, whether life is meaningful, and also what kind of pleasure people are getting from their lives. So we know spending a whole lot of time with young kids doesn't create a lot of pleasure. Though for many people, it creates a sense of purpose. And we know that for many people, watching TV or watching your laptop can give you a sense of pleasure. It's fun, can be fun, but it's not extremely meaningful. And targeting fun in particular would be a completely new project. The reason why fun is important is that it's an ingredient of a good life for almost all of us, and also that it has uh, knock-on effects, so that if you are smiling and laughing at, let's say, lunchtime, you're having a lot of fun, there's a good chance that in the afternoon, things are going to go better. 
So you talk about fun as a solution in a policy space, that we can deploy fun strategically as a way to be more engaging with, with the public, for instance. Can you talk to us a little bit more about fun as a policy solution? So Pepsi, the soft drink company, marketed Diet Pepsi in various nations. I don't know what the figures were exactly, but I do know that in some nations, Diet Pepsi was not a spectacular success. Uh, there's a shift to Pepsi Max, which let's just stipulate tastes a bit different, but not crazily better than Diet Pepsi. Pepsi Max was very successful, has been very, very successful. And uh, a reasonable inference is that Pepsi Max, that's a fun concept. Max, maximum, and also diet. Uh, diet Pepsi, by contrast, you think diet, and then you think, and also maybe good tasting. The idea of putting an emphasis on the fun aspect, which is max, is behaviorally clever. Uh, there's a more rigorous test of this hypothesis, let's call it the fun hypothesis, which involves how to get people to eat vegetables. It's a study out of Stanford. And if you emphasize vegetables are healthy, you get a significant increase in consumption if it's done right, at 14%. If you emphasize that the vegetables are really tasty and delicious, you get a much bigger increase in consumption, over 25%. And that's because tasty and delicious sounds like fun and healthy sounds like worthy or earnest or hooray for the long term, which isn't exactly fun. Amazon markets certain projects with a kind of uh, frustration-free packaging. That's the term. And it's fun. You open up the product and there it is. If it's an electric razor, which I use, it's right there. You don't have to work with plastic and wires and cut yourself. It's not time-consuming. But if you look at what frustration-free packaging is about, it's really about no plastic, no solid waste, recyclables. It's environmentally preferable. And uh, they don't market it as green packaging. They market it as frustration-free. Frustration-free is in the vicinity of fun. Okay, with respect to policymaking, if we look at leaders in the context of COVID-19, we can see that some have emphasized not grimness and death, but instead determination and a kind of wink at the same time. In Taiwan, the notion of fun has actually been taken explicitly on board by the highest level officials who have said humor, not rumor. And that's smart because if people feel that there is wit and a joke, they are also likely to feel there's optimism and hope. Whereas if they feel they're being terrified and put in a place from which they'll never emerge, they might do it out of fear, but their days are going to be a lot worse. In New Zealand, the prime minister has said, you know, at one point, we're going to have a lockdown or relative lockdown, but the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy, they're going to get exemptions. And and to say that in the midst of something not good is to make one's fellow citizens smile and laugh a little bit. And to do that can be both an instrument of making the days better, which is very important, and also an instrument to make, about making the suggested or maybe mandated behavior change not merely more tolerable, but also a kind of shared enterprise that makes people smile a little bit. Is fun a universal solution? Is it relevant everywhere or are there specific kinds of problems that are worse handled by tapping into fun? And I wouldn't say it was universal. I'd say whatever we think its domain of usefulness is, we are underestimating 
its domain of usefulness. But there are certain areas where it's extremely challenging to introduce fun. If people are facing, you know, a very grim situation in a pandemic, let's say members of the family are really, really sick and possibly at serious risk of dying, then fun is going to be very challenging to introduce. Maybe a smile and a sense of meaning will be possible, but fun, not so much. And there are some contexts where what's called fear appeals are the best approach. So if people are at risk, let's say, of doing something on a beach, like swimming in circumstances in which that's really dangerous, to give people a sense that the stakes are really high and they might get hurt, which isn't a fun thing to hear, is a really good idea. Graphic health warnings for cigarettes seem to be effective. Something like fear appeals for cell phone use while driving seem also to be effective, and those aren't exactly fun. We need to think of our domain. But the fact is that for much behavior change, policymakers have overestimated the impact of scaring people relative to the impact of making people think that they're in an enterprise which has, uh, if not enjoyment at the core, has plenty of enjoyment in it. That's interesting. And it resonates with a, a piece that, that came up in, in a discussion you had with the Washingtonian. In that piece, there was some discussion of fun and identity and authenticity. And I wonder whether you could uh, tell us a little bit about your views on whether fun represents an opportunity for politicians to reconnect with rank and file everyday people who are feeling very disconnected from the political caste. They feel that there's a group of elites that is disconnected from them that runs on their behalf, but not their best interests in mind. And we see this globally with a lot of different groups turning towards populist leaders. Populism, of course, being exactly that kind of reconnection to genuine, authentic relationship with people. Is fun an opportunity for us to counter populism? <laughs> well, I think populism has many virtues, so we shouldn't see it as something we need to counter, that populism is at least in some form at the root of any understanding of democracy. And respect for the dignity of individual people is what democracy should put maybe as top priority, certainly on the list. I agree with the thrust of the question, which is that a sense of fun has equality built into it. So when the Prime Minister of New Zealand said, we're going to make an exemption for the tooth fairy, that was really connecting with ordinary people and their concerns, which is, what's parenting about now? And the Easter Bunny gets to go. The Easter Bunny doesn't have to stay home. That's connecting with people. Whatever your political views, former Vice President Biden was on this when he said early on, if I can walk, I'll run. That was pretty funny because he's not a young guy. And he was saying, you know, I can't walk. I'm not going to run. But it both disarmed people who think, you know, over 75 is kind of getting up there. And also people who think of politicians as some kind of elite with different incentives and focus than they have. So completely, it's a responsibility of public officials to meet people where they are. And we're all human. COVID-19 has put in very bold letters the fact that we're all mortal. We have a number of years on the globe. And if you're enjoying your interaction, let's say, with a member of the human species, or particularly if a member of the human species is like, 
laughing with you about something that you're kind of supposed to do now, then your willingness to do it is increased compared to if there's some elite telling you, if you don't do this, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, I really like that leveling aspect, that egalitarian aspect of fun. I recall hearing a, a talk that was given some years ago now at Google, where the uh, the presenter was speaking about puns, and especially puns in the political context of, I believe it was the early 1600s in England, when they were trying to put together the first dictionaries. And uh, he was talking about the politically subversive effects of puns and the fun that they bring with them. That actually, as as lawmakers and in that case, dictionary makers try to nail down the meaning of words into such a, a closely confined box. The pun, of course, is just, you know, the sledgehammer that comes and knocks down that wall and really reemphasizes and reinscribes the fact that the meaning of words is constantly shifting. It's not completely variable. You can't use any word to mean anything at one time, but you also can't completely nail it down and, and keep it fixed. And that part of what we need to contend with in the political sphere is the fact that our ecosystem is always evolving, as convenient as it might be to be able to nail it down. You're on a deep point. So really, thank you for this. I hadn't thought of, which is that if a leader makes a joke, at least much of the time in business or in politics, the leader is making herself or himself vulnerable because the joke might fall flat. A joke has in it a bit of a plea, which recognizes the authority of the person to whom the joke is being offered. And if you have someone who, let's say, is a subordinate, who is an employee who's trying to make the boss laugh. If the boss laughs, that's an acknowledgement of equality on the part of the employee. And people who are, you know, a student who can make a professor laugh or a professor who can make a dean laugh, there's something equalizing about that that's really important. And when Amazon, I know a lot of people have a lot of different views on Amazon, but when it says frustration-free packaging, It's making an acknowledgement of the worth and the time of its customers. And whether it's doing that solely for economic reasons or partly because it feels it, people get that. And that makes them think, you know, I'm going to get that electric razor, which doesn't drive me crazy to open rather than someone else's electric razor. Coming back to the behavioral science perspective on this, so often behavioral psychology, behavioral economics is introduced as something of a response to microeconomics, where microeconomists make this assumption of the totally rational agent who behaves in extremely predictable and maximizing ways. And behavioral science comes along and says, well, actually, there are some uh, pretty uh, clear systematic deviations from that. And and what we're going to do as behavioral psychologists is map the contours of how we deviate systematically from this rational ideal. But that presentation of the history of behavioral psychology doesn't do much to displace the ideal that if we had our druthers, we would all be these ideal rational agents. It just turns out that we aren't. What you're talking about here really blows that whole idea up. What you're talking about is something that is much more I think embracing of a deeper and richer conceptualization of the human experience, the way that you're talking about fun, the way that you're talking about enjoyment and pleasure and connecting with other human beings, 
I didn't hear you mention once that we're doing this for maximizing purposes and all to, you know, get the most gain out of it that we can for ourselves personally. Can you elaborate a little bit on uh, your views about a rational human agent in an environment with others? Okay, so that's great. And there are some distinctions to be made. The origins of modern behavioral economics, I'm going to say that rather than behavioral science, because behavioral economics developed by Robert Schiller and Richard Thaler in the early days was, as you say, very self-consciously a response to rational actor models. So there's that saying that you think that people maximize, but actually people suffer from biases. Let's say present bias, they focus on today and not the long term. Unrealistic optimism, they often think things are going to work out for me, even though a rational actor would think the risk that they won't is higher than the unreasonably optimistic person thinks. And the documentation of systematic departures from rationality was certainly the first generation, maybe the second generation of behavioral science. Then there's applied behavioral science, both in business and in government. I worked in the White House for a number of years. And if I had said that people don't follow rational actor models to, let's say, the Secretary of Transportation and the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, they would have looked at me as if to say, you know, what are you talking about and how is that useful? And if you think of a company like Facebook or Coca-Cola using behavioral insights or behavioral economics, the claim that people don't follow rational actor models isn't that interesting. What people actually do and how they respond to things, that's interesting. So if you say in government, if you automatically enroll people in a program for free lunches and breakfast for poor kids, let's say, the take-up rate is going to be much higher than if you ask them to fill out a one-page form. That's interesting. It doesn't use the word rational. It's not academic. So let's distinguish between the first and second generation of behavioral science and then applied behavioral science by policymakers in the private sector. Then there's a third thing, which I think is you're getting at, which is we could call the third or even fourth generation of behavioral economics and behavioral science, which is less preoccupied by departures from rationality and more intrigued by uh, particular associations between human motivations and outcomes. So if you can show, and this is something that's very much a research work in progress, that if people have fun with something, they're more likely to do the thing, then you will have an empirical finding that's extremely useful. And I gave you the example about increasing consumption of vegetables where fun beats uh, health as an incentive. Now, in terms of rational actor models and its relationship to fun, I have kind of good news and bad news, and it's the same, which is that I was a colleague for decades of Gary Becker at the University of Chicago, who's probably the principal exponent of rational actor models. And I can channel him with respect to fun. He'd say, I have no problem with fun. People like fun. If you make things more fun, to do it more not a problem for me. It would be a problem for me if people avoided fun. I'd have to figure out what was in their utility function, such that fun was for them a negative thing. Maybe they would think that fun was associated with something illegitimate or something. And I can kind of start modeling people's utility functions. That's actually an interesting enterprise, I think, for researchers. As, as we talk, it could do that. 
where some populations, and I'm sure this is actually true, would prefer green packaging to frustration-free packaging because greenness is greater than fun. But Amazon has made what is probably an informed bet, which is fun is greater than greenness for the majority of its consumers. That raises an interesting point. One of the things you said in there really stuck in my mind, this idea of fun as illegitimate. And there's a deep cultural history to why we might think of fun as illegitimate, as the opposite of productive or morally uplifting and all kinds of other virtues that we tend to put on a very high pedestal in our culture. I want to pivot now into how we put fun into practice keeping in mind, especially those things, that fun struggles to get airtime as a legitimate idea, as a legitimate means. The empirical demonstrations of the effectiveness of fun, of course, are a great motivator because the the empirical demonstration of effectiveness is something we put on a high pedestal. But how do we get the ball rolling on putting fun into practice in policy, in corporate contexts? You talked about the example or the the instance of uh, colleagues joking amongst each other, subordinates joking with their their superordinates. (laughs) How do we get the ball rolling if fun is struggling with this legitimacy problem? Okay, so to back up, the Behavioral Insights uh, team in the United Kingdom has a framework called EAST, which has been had worldwide influence, and partly because it's really good, and partly because it's a summary of behavioral findings. And it says, if you want to make things different, change behavior, first, make it easy. That's the E. Second, make it attractive, the A. Third, make it social, like emphasizing social norms. That's the S. And fourth, make it timely. That's the T. And all of those are evidence-based ideas of which, in the context of many problems, Olympic gold goes to E, make it easy, and Olympic silver goes to S, emphasize uh, the social norm or the emerging norm. Okay, my amendment to this much-admired framework, much-admired by me, is to turn it to feast, meaning have F for fun to start the show. And that really does resonate, I've found, in the last months in policy circles. There is clarity on the part of many public officials that this connects with something human. And both if you are exercising your responsibilities as leader and if you're implementing a policy, to think of people's affective response is really important. And if people are having fun with their job, that can increase productivity and increase effectiveness. So we're really on a frontiers issue here to say, let's say in a medium-sized enterprise that is engaged in making something and selling something, that this is a fun place to work. That's good for business. It doesn't delegitimate the enterprise. It makes people more motivated. It makes people feel respected. It makes people really want to work there. And you know, I've worked with law firms and such, and sometimes they are explicit that their job is fun, and they both like that and they market that. Some things, you know, would be disrespectful to make them fun uh, and to make a joke on 
an occasion that has uh, some things associated with it would be inconsistent with the nature of the occasion. And cultures, as you say, are different on this count. Since I've been working on the topic of fun and behavior change, I've actually talked to policymakers and I've noticed that in some cultures, the idea is extremely resonant. And in other cultures, there's a question mark next to it. And uh, the idea connects deeply with cultural understandings in some places and in other places, not that it doesn't, but just less so. And that's, that's just how things are now, or maybe how things have been for 400 years. If the goal is to stop, let's say, sexual harassment, probably the East framework is really good. And the addition of F is not the best thing in the world. So it's even hard to get one's mind around the idea of not sexually harassing is a fun thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It doesn't add fun. I hope it doesn't subtract fun, but that's not what it's about. On the other hand, if you're trying to help people to eat healthier or to cope with a pandemic or to deal with a safety problem at work, the F is really good to keep in mind. As you were talking, one of the thoughts that jumped to mind is that fun, because it's effective, is kind of cheating, isn't it? Like, is that really fun? Is that authentic fun? Or is that instrumentalizing fun simply because it's an effective means to reach your end goal? I think to instrumentalize fun is completely fine. If you are a teacher of, let's say, high school students, and you think over the summer, either because it's going to be online or because it's going to be challenging in a hybrid or challenging in there, I'm going to put a premium on fun, both because I want the students to have a good experience. And I think if they're having fun, they're going to learn better. That's, uh, uh, that is instrumentalizing fun. And that's, that's not wrong. I'm reminded of the dictum from Kant, you know, that you shouldn't use people as a means to an end or not strictly as a means to an end. They should also be a good in themselves. I wonder if fun is something we should treat the same way, that you can use fun to achieve other things, but you shouldn't only use it for that reason. It needs to have some inherently kind of free-spirited, enjoyable, unencumbered purpose to be able to be what it is. Well, it depends on the context. If you're going out with someone you're dating and you think it's going to be a really fun evening, that's for its own sake. I mean, it might be relationship building also, but it's not to get them to, we hope, uh, to lose weight or stop smoking. It's that you're going to have a fun evening. So in some contexts, fun is for itself basically only or mostly. And it's not treating people as means to say, we're going to have fun together. We're going to go to a movie in the ancient days when people went to movies, or we're going to go to dinner in what remain days where people are able to go to dinner. That's intrinsically fine. I don't have anything good to say about communism, and Emma Goldman was a communist, but she had one very good thing to say herself, which is, I will participate in no revolution in which they do not dance. And that was about social movements generally, that if you lose your capacity to dance, the heads might roll. And in any case, it's not going to work as well. And in any case, who wants to be in such a movement? Coming back to the application context and continuing on that point, in circumstances, let's say corporate contexts where pressure is really high, let's just say uh, we'll characterize them as head rolling environments. You know, ones where people are very worried about how their behaviors will be perceived. And, uh, you know, perception is a very kind of weighty 
thing in the ecosystem. What are some of the, the barriers that we might encounter in trying to introduce fun as a solution to promote better engagement and to increase productivity? The types of bottom line things that companies like that often care a lot about, but that might struggle ideologically with the idea that fun could be a way to get there. If you're tense and scared, you're not likely to have a whole lot of fun. So let's suppose it's a government which is struggling with a very serious economic problem and the leaders aren't sure exactly what to do to get the nation out of that distress. And every day is an obstacle course or a maze and you can't find your way out. I've been there a little bit during the recession of 2008, where for policymakers, there's fun, but the pressure is extremely intense. Or suppose you're working for a company, large or small, that is facing a great deal of economic pressure. It might go out of business. So the obstacle is the primary imperative is to perform. And if that's really on your shoulders as a big way, you're not going to be having a lot of fun. I once asked, by the way, uh, one of the world's great athletes, a highly relevant question. I'm not going to disclose his name for reasons that will become clear. This is really one of the best athletes in the world. I was at a, a large event with maybe 200 people, and I found myself in a group of eight to 10, and one was this guy. And I looked up at him, he's tall, and I said, this hadn't occurred to me until your question, I said to him, I just have a question for someone like you. When the game is on the line and there isn't much time left and everything's on your shoulders, are you having fun? And he looked around our little group and paused and said with pretty booming voice, he said, absolutely. Do you ask me if I'm having fun at the time when all the pressure's on me? That's what I live for. That's what I'm trained to do. Of course I'm having fun. That's the best. I confess I was surprised by the answer because I play a little sport called squash and I know some of the really good squash players and I wouldn't expect that answer. So about an hour later, I found myself in a corner of the room by myself and there was he by himself close to the corner and I called him over and looked up again and I said, your answer really surprised me. I asked, is that true? You're having fun with all the pressure? And he kind of whispered conspiratorially and he said, you want the real answer? I said, yeah, I do. He said, no, it's not fun. He said, it's terrible. He said, don't get me wrong. I know what to do. And he does. He's a fantastic pressure performer. But I'm not having fun. It's awful. Okay, that was interesting. And it's relevant to your question, which was when the pressure is intensely on, you're just focused. You're not having fun. That's a problem for the advocates of fun. It's okay because after the game, he can laugh. And before things get terrible, he can make a joke or two. Both of those help him, I'm quite confident, to perform well under conditions that just aren't fun. Right. So for uh, those listeners out there who are converted proponents of fun, in terms of kind of practical takeaways, it sounds like one of them is take the temperature of the room before you decide how you're going to move forward. If the room is too tense, now's not the right time wait for the pressure to be a little bit lower before you go riding off on this chivalrous adventure to bring fun back to the workplace. I'd say takeaway number one, however much one is oneself having, 
or the people with whom one works or the people for whom one works or the people who are working for one are having, add 15% more. That would be the first takeaway. And the second takeaway, which is, is that tension may be your friend if you are part of the fun brigade. Maybe not. But if people are very tense and the good leaders are excellent at this, to introduce some fun might be exactly the right thing to do. But you have to have situation sense. If it's a context in which the pressure is so intense that introducing fun is just going to make people roll their eyes or get distracted, don't do it. But even in circumstances of tension, something like 10% more fun. That's not a precise number, but something like that is probably the right idea. I was wondering whether there's something along the lines of, uh, you know, in those more propitious moments to deploy fun, taking the opportunity to raise the baseline kind of on a, on a systematic basis to try to find ways that are not just going to sort of bring in a little bit of fun here or there, but to systematically get people having a little bit more fun basically all the time. Completely. So there's ambient fun, and then there's a fun thing. So the idea of Pepsi Max, it's not the most fun thing in the world, but it's more fun than Diet Pepsi. That's a localized fun thing. But ambient fun as part of the enterprise is good to keep in mind. I'm conscious here that Samuel Johnson, one of my heroes, uh, wrote, nothing is more doomed to failure than a scheme of merriment. Uh, Meaning if you kind of scheme merriment and fun, you better be careful because if it seems too constructed and artificial, people will think, okay, now our task is to have fun. So a degree of spontaneity and lightness is maybe a necessary precondition for something not to be a doomed scheme of merriment. And I wonder whether there's a virtuous cycle to be found there, that by raising the ambient levels of fun, that makes it easier to introduce fun into those moments that are a little bit harder, where you can more easily uh, kind of achieve the effect that you want with a, a punctual intervention. Someone in the White House with whom I worked, who was kind of famously a great manager, and one of his management skills is that every meeting with him just was fun. It was and is. And he's dealing with, you know, he was dealing in his current business job, he is dealing with extremely difficult problems. He was the head of the National Economic Council at one point, head of the Office of Management Budget at another point. But these are positions which he wore lightly and could make fun for people. So in a meeting, people would be laughing. Yeah, I really like that idea and conscious of time and and the generosity that uh, that you have shown with your time will... will converge towards wrap up here. I think the idea that resonates most strongly with me that I'm taking away from this is to not neglect ambient fun. Because if you allow that ship to become derelict, it will be harder to have it there when you need it as your emergency rescue boat, perhaps. Are there any summative thoughts that, uh, that you have to share with us today? Yes. So let's put a spotlight on the following, which is the difference between Pepsi Max and Diet Pepsi, the difference between delicious, colorful vegetables and healthy vegetables, the difference between frustration-free packaging and green packaging. These are uh, targeting some action or product 
and associating it with something in, in the vicinity, at least, of fun. And that can be a great motivator of behavior change. When people think X is more fun than Y, the choice of X is starting to look better. Well, thank you very much for that. And once again, thank you very much for your time. I'm sure that all of our listeners will enjoy this. I personally have just thoroughly enjoyed our discussion this morning. And uh, I hope that we can can speak again at some point in the future. Thank you. Great pleasure for me. Thanks a lot. If you'd like to learn more about Applied Behavioral Insights, you can find plenty of materials on our website, thedecisionlab.com. There, you'll also be able to find our newsletter, which features the latest and greatest developments in the field, including these podcasts, as well as great public content about biases, interventions, and our project work.